For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Saturday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating? I believe that there's something to be celebrated every day if we take the time to do so. Tonight, there's so many people and uh, places and things that I want to celebrate, but I want to start uh, by celebrating my dear friend, Mindy Fratkin, because Mindy was the one who suggested that I bring Richard Barone on our show tonight. And I want to tell you, I have absolutely loved this book, Music Plus, uh, Plus Revolution, Greenwich Village in the 1960s. And in the very first paragraph in the book, it refers to 1961, which was the year I was born. I was born in February 11th, 1961. And just a few months later, Bob Dylan made his debut in Greenwich Village. So tonight we're gonna go back to that time period. We're gonna celebrate Richard, the wonderful work that he does and continues to do in terms of not only creating great music, but sharing this music with so many other people through his writing, through his teachings and through everything he does. So Richard, tonight I celebrate you. Wow. And I wanna ask you who or what are you celebrating tonight besides the fact that on September 15th, this amazing book was released. Wow, you know, I celebrate every minute of the day. I just, I'm a, I'm a celebrator. And I really love that you, that your show is about celebration because that's, and your opening is so positive. I mean, that's what we need more of. It's uh, celebrating each minute every day in all of us. Absolutely. Uh, and I wanna talk about your trajectory to get to where you are. Um, I know that at seven years old, if I'm not mistaken, you were the youngest DJ, I think, probably in the country. Um, there's a wonderful guy now, if you're not familiar with him, check him out, Charles Kirsch. And he started doing a podcast at the beginning of COVID mm -hmm. uh, celebrating Broadway. And as I was reading about your history, I was thinking about Charles. Mm. I was thinking about this love. I mean, there, I do believe uh, in past lives, as, the, as woo woo as that's going to sound to you. No. Because even at seven years old, you had such an appreciation for music. Yeah. And there you were in uh, Tampa, Florida, yeah. playing yeah. this music. Um, where do you feel that that came from, that love of the music at such an early age for you? Well, for me, I think it was about, I listened to radio. I was, uh, as a child, I had asthma. Uh, I, I was not always well enough to go to school. So I would listen to the radio all the time. I mean, at school too, I would listen to the radio. I was obsessed with the pop radio stations. So that's why at age seven, my mom took me to go meet the, my favorite DJs of the uh, top 40 station, uh, WALT AM radio in Tampa, Florida. And when I met the DJs, I told them immediately that I wanted to be one. And they, uh, a very nice DJ named Ray, uh, wait, Mm, what's his name? Oh my God, his name escapes me. But Ray, his first name Ray, uh, told me, well, why don't we go on the air right now? We'll put you on the air. So I did like a little bit of a uh, dialogue on the air for a minute and there was great response. And he asked me, well, can you can you come back next week? And pretty soon I had a, a weekly show every Sunday called Beach Party on WALT. I was seven and I would spin records on the beach and I get to choose the songs. As long as they were in the top 40, I was allowed to pick because it was that kind of radio station. 
I mean, that's, I got, that's every, I mean, for me, I mean, I can only imagine. I would have loved to have had I that did. I loved it. And it got me to love music even more. And then I got my mom to buy me a guitar. So I started playing guitar by seven or eight years old and, you know, got into bands. And when I was a teenager, then I started producing other groups and I produced Tiny Tim. Of course, I think you might know that from my bio, but. Uh, that's yes. Been- and Tiny Tim and I appeared together. Oh, really? Yes. So. <laughs> wow, wow. He was fantastic. I think I loved him. And. He's the one who really taught me a lot about Greenwich Village in the 60s because, of course, he was here. He's in my book quite a, quite a bit. Oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Pops in there. And, you know, he told me what a magical scene it was. I was a little too – I was a baby when, when this was happening, you know, but I – I think I'm a little older than you. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, and, uh, I, you are. You yeah. are, but, but, but you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe in age, so it doesn't no, matter. Well, that but, is, well yeah. good. Uh, but, yeah. uh, you know, I celebrate every day. Uh, so oh, of course. I celebrate, I celebrate my age, but growing up in uh, South Yeah, yeah, of course. When I made up my mind that I was going to come to New York, um, I read so many books about Greenwich Village. Yeah. And one of the things that I read in your book, um, you know, early on is that um, the landscape of Greenwich Village is pretty much exactly as it was in 1961. It's really close. It's one of the, you know, because it's a landmark since 69, it's not changed very much. My street, I live on Waverly Place. It's, I don't think there's anything different on Waverly Place on my block that, Except that now the restaurant, the Waverly Inn, has an outdoor cafe because of COVID. But otherwise, it really is pretty much the same as it's always been. And that's how a lot of the village is. And I think that had a lot to do, that had a lot of effect on the songwriters and the performers. This idea that they're part of a bigger picture of uh, of history and their songwriting. Bob Dylan is a great example of that. Uh, has sort of a classic sensibility to it or almost an old-fashioned sensibility even at the beginning of the space age they were looking to the old days in their writing style and the words they chose to sing uh there's a sense of tradition in it that's why traditional folk was so popular right one of the reasons traditional folk music was so popular here it just seemed to fit in because a lot of the songs they were doing the ones that did traditional music were written during the time that the buildings were built well, I love the fact that your mom gave you that guitar. Um, yeah. I know that you say in the book that as you were writing this book, I mean, you would pick up the guitar and you would pluck out chords on the uh, as you were playing and everything. Um, as I'm writing, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you said that you began producing also at an early age. Uh, if you can talk a little bit about that and how you were able to uh, start producing other yeah. artists. Yeah. You know, a lot of it came because... Uh, I was given by my dad a tape recorder and I learned how, like I sort of learned about recording techniques. So when I met Tiny Tim, I had already been recording my band in high school, but when I met Tiny Tim, I just introduced myself as a record producer. And he said, oh yeah, that's great. You want to hear some songs? And he sort of played me these old songs. And I said, well, yeah, we should go record them or we should start recording them, which we did. The next night I started bringing my uh, portable rig to his hotel room we sort of recording conversations and music and then i said well we should go to the recording studio and do this properly which we did and we made an album when i was 16 i had produced uh, a record for him and he he was very pleased with it because as a producer i didn't tell him what to play or how to play i just wanted to capture what he was already doing really and um i allowed him to do songs that he wanted to do that were obscure songs from the 1920s and 30s which he loved and, and you know, he was very happy with it. And we made a great recording that you can get now on Spotify and 
Apple Music and all the services. It's called, so I've, it's called uh, I've Never Seen a Straight Banana is the name of the album that we made. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, when you were at that early age uh, and you were producing and you were uh, really immersed uh, in the music world at such an early age, mm. were you already thinking of this as a career or were you, th was this uh, at, as, a, as a young child? And I mean this respectfully, uh, was it just fun for you or were you really thinking of a linear type of a career for yourself? It wasn't even that I had to think about it. I felt I was already in it. I felt I was already in my career when I was in when I was seven. I felt that I was going to be in music. I didn't know. I thought I'd be more behind the scenes than I became. When I came to New York and I got into a band, I was then thrust into the position of being the front man. Yes. That's what my first book is about, front man. Yes. That wasn't what I thought I would be doing. I was. I thought I'd be more like with the headphones like this and at the controls and capturing things. And I didn't think I'd be rocking on stage with my guitar. I thought I'd be behind the scenes in the studios playing the guitar and, and singing. So, uh, yeah. So it, it, I went with the flow. The well, you flow also to, say yeah. in your book that you got equal pleasure out of both sides of, this, uh, of the microphone, if you will. Yes. But that you yeah. really love the producing aspect of it. I really do. I just, I think of it just as an equal art form to performing. I think of uh, the producer's role is very important and, you know, to mirror what the artist's vision is and to make it, to put it into a frame that the audience can understand. It's, it's a great, it's an art form and I love it. And I love doing it whenever I have a chance. So when the opportunity came uh, for you for mm -hmm. the bongos, uh, I mean, what, I mean, was it, uh, did it just, was it handed to you? Was this something you pursued? How did that all begin? Well, once we started playing, you know, we had a great sound. It, that The bongos had an excellent dance, pop, post-punk, new wave sound, if you're going to put all those words together. And it was uh, very positive music, and people could have a lot of fun with it. And when we played on in clubs, we had got great response. And within a few months, we had a record offer from a British record label. So we were thrilled to sign it, and we went to England and made our first album and toured there. Uh, so one thing led to another with the group. We didn't really think about a plan or we just went again with the flow and the flow took us into uh, touring a lot. We went on tour for 300 shows a year, which we did for like seven years or so. Yeah. And I mean, you were living, were you living in Hoboken at the time? I know that you yeah. were very much part of that music. Yes. Scene. Yeah, uh, but there was no there was no music. We started the music scene. You to started be, the to music be scene. Yeah, yeah, there really wasn't one there. There was one or two acts. And we, you know, we uh, were fortunate enough to have a, um, a neighborhood restaurant that had just been purchased by a young family, uh, Steve Allen and his family, and uh, they allowed us to perform there. But it wasn't really a music venue yet. Uh, and that started a scene in Hoboken, I think, that was really uh, very influential. And Maxwell's uh, stayed open for many years, 25 years or so, uh, with a very a lot of success and a lot of people playing there. I want to go back to the way that you and I listened to music at one time. And yeah. obviously you were right there in the throes of it, uh, choosing what was going to uh, be played on the air. Mm -hmm. um, as a DJ, I mean, I grew up listening to AM radio uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, WLAT 
in my hometown. Ah, oh yeah. What uh, town is that? What town is that? Uh, Conway, South Carolina. Nice, nice. And nice. Uh, I still remember uh, the call letters and everything at, yeah. at WLAT 9.30 a.m. That's great. And uh, because I listened to music and what I loved about uh, the music that I was listening to is uh, I would not only hear contemporary music, but every once in a while I would hear uh, music from my parents' generation sure. and my grandparents' generation because they played everything on that channel. And I think that the way that the music industry is set up right now, when everything is so uh, niche-oriented, uh, yeah. uh, that so many people in today's world uh, have missed out on the opportunities that you and I had in yeah. terms of a broader range of what we listen to. If you could yeah. talk about that for a moment and your yeah. thoughts on that. Well, this comes up a lot in my class at the new school. Uh, I talk to my students about that. I, I try to get them to be open-minded to all genres because that's how it should be. And that's how certainly it was in the sixties and why the music that I wrote about in the book, why it even exists is because those uh, singers and songwriters were listening to jazz and old, like you said, older music from other generations. And they were pulling songs from the 1920s, like Tiny Tim, 20s and 30s. They loved stuff from the 40s. And they certainly loved the 50s, the folk revival of the 1950s, the Weavers. They, these young yeah. artists in the 60s loved the 50s folk music, you know, and were big fans of that. And that's who they're... So, so the, the thing about the genres is that it's, it's now very separated and, and you're right, niche, niche, but you could say genre if you, if you could also substitute the word genre because, you know, people that listen to hip hop may not listen to rock, we may not listen to vintage, like big band music, may not miss and listen to uh, mus uh, musical theater or folk music. But if you are open-minded, that's when you can be your most creative, I think. And when you speak of hip hop, when, when I talk to my dear friend in the group uh, Run DMC, uh, Daryl McDaniels, DMC, He's always telling me that when he was starting with this group, they love folk music and were trying to do what folk music does in their rap songs. He particularly liked Harry Chapin, for instance. You know, so he's open minded. You know, you can be and you can be successful by being open minded to genres and not to be stuck in one or the other. But well, I'm going to make a statement, and you're welcome to totally disagree with me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I, I mean, for me, I feel personally, yeah. personal opinion, everyone, yeah. that MTV was the greatest disservice to the music industry. And I believe that, and I say this because when MTV first began, first of all, um, it was segregated, uh, mm. number one. Absolutely. And number, uh, and number two, uh, the fact that uh, the ad campaign, I remember when MTV started, and on all the subways and everything, it was not your grandparents' music. Right. Uh, and yeah. it was geared to a very specific demographic. You're right. And uh, nothing else was played on that uh, MTV except to that specific demographic. I'd like to get yes. your take on that. That's such a good question for me because I was at the beginning, at, the bongos were right at the beginning of MTV and we were very much embraced by them. So it's hard for me to totally uh, put them down. But I hear what you're saying, and I think you're right. It, they were because you know, coming out as a let me in a their perhaps in their defense, but I'm not really here to defend them. I'm not their nope. attorney. But if I were to defend them, I would say that because they were such a new thing, they were trying to find their audience, and they thought this is how this is an audience that we now can we can work with because this is the material we're getting from record companies, like the bands that were providing the videos, 
and that you know they really had a certain genre to work with i think at first i think that it was a shame that it was you're like as you said you used the word segregated and i believe i agree with that i think it was uh it was a shame because there, you when you do that you're missing out on a whole world of music that you sh- everyone should be able to share luckily the artists that broke through like michael jackson and prince they were they had to they there was no way that MTV couldn't play those artists because they were simply so good, so mm-hmm. innovative, and so fresh at the time that they had to break the wall down, you know. Um, but I agree. I think that MTV, when it first started, had a certain niche. I happened to have fallen into that niche. I ha- my group happened to fall perfectly into that demographic because we were that type of band that MTV loved, you know. But yeah, I mean, I think maybe you could say that's a disservice. But I think there's they weren't the only disservice. That's true. That's and true. one one other thing that became a disservice to the way we listen to music, I believe, and I love it, and I use it, used it, was the Sony Walkman, in oh. which now, instead of sharing music on a speaker where we all share it in a room together, everyone has their own headphones on, listening to what they want to listen to only at the time that they want to hear it on a cassette or whatever it was, and not really on a shared experience with others. Well... Richard, first and foremost, I'm an entertainer. Yeah. Uh, I love being on stage. Yeah. And to me, the collection, uh, I was fortunate enough, I've dropped her name many times and I'm going to drop it again now, Carol Channing. Oh, uh, I love Carol said, Channing. Yeah. Uh, that in order for a show or an artist to succeed, they need, audiences need to be made up of people from various uh, walks of life. Uh, doctors and lawyers and housewives and teachers and uh, everyone. And there's nothing to me that's more exciting when I am sitting watching an artist on stage and everyone is focused on the artist and we're all having this collective beating at the same time. And Hampton Calloway has a song called At the Same Time. And one of the lyrics is our hearts are beating at the same time. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that's what the experience of being uh, with a great art, uh, seeing a great artist on stage, uh, watching uh, that happening and being able to share in that collection. Um, and uh, and I think it, it's there's nothing better than having that happen. Um, and, you know, again, if you can elaborate on that from your point of view, uh, being on both sides of the footlights. Absolutely. And for one thing, I love uh, Carol Channing and Anne Hampton Calloway, who I've worked with many times uh, in shows that I've produced, because I, I'm with you. I believe uh, a mixed audience and a mixed, even on one show, <clears throat> a mixed cast of characters uh, makes a better show. Uh, and I do believe that... Um, there's, I'm sorry, there's a sound, there's an alarm going off in my home, so just ignore me if I seem slightly, dis- I'm not distracted. Oh, I hear the alarm. Do you want to yeah. take it off? Or? Do you, mind, you, you, mind me? you mind? No, just go ahead. Just one second. Okay. That should do it. Hey, Siri, okay. stop. Uh, <laughs> I have to change the name of mine in case, you know, so uh, if I say yeah. Alexa, it's not going to go off. Absolutely. So I know exactly what's happening. Yeah, yes, yeah, so I got um, it. Stop now. You but, have this course that you teach at the new school, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how did that come about? And I know we're going to get to the book. Uh, the, the book is an evolution of this course that you teach. It is. Um, you mm-hmm. created your own course, which I love. I think this is amazing. You know, it really started from making an album. In 2016, I made an album called Sorrows and Promises, 
Greenwich Village in the 1960s. Which is great, everyone. Thank I, you. I listened to it today. I really love it. I love making it. And we tried to be very true to the original songs and yet a little, a little different, but they're pretty pure, you know, and true. Well, while I was making it, I didn't want to just randomly do cover songs. I wanted to make it like a performance piece that I could take on the road and have stories the way we do in cabaret music, mm -hmm. uh, that it's more, it's a story. So that story eventually became the concert tour, became a big concert in Central Park in 2018, which mm -hmm. was also, which was called Music and Revolution, by the way. The, the name evolved from Sorrows and Promises to something that was a wider, a wider message, Music and Revolution, because I do feel it was a, a revolution in music. Not only were the songs about wanting to create a revolution, but the idea of the singer-songwriter emerging from this was a revolution in the music industry. So there's a reason for why I call it Music Plus Revolution. Anyway, so that was the name of the concert in Central Park. By that point, I had been gathering so many stories and working with so many so many of the original artists that the conversations were just, they, they informed everything that I did when I performed the music. Like I remember the things they told me and I knew I, I knew I wanted to write a book and I knew I wanted to teach it as a class. Those two things happened really in a way simultaneously. The only reason the book took longer than the, the class, the, the class began rather soon. I think by 2017, I was teaching this mm -hmm. course, but the book, I had to wait. I hate to say the pandemic. Yes. When yes. I could not perform shows, I was home in the village, in the place where it all happened, looking out my window. And I thought, wait, this is the time. This is when I can write this book. It was, things had quieted down. The streets were empty. I had no shows to do because there were no shows to do. And, uh, and I wrote it and that, you know, it took that period of time. It was more than a year of writing solidly every day and just staying up all night and writing. And really the quietest time, of course, anywhere is the middle of the night. That's when the stories would just come to me. And I made a lot of phone calls, late phone calls to people. And that's where the interviews emerged. And some of them were ongoing interviews that were going on for the whole year. You know, like as I'd come to a point in writing, I'd say, wait a minute, how did that happen? Or how did this happen? And I would call them or write them on Facebook Messenger. And pretty soon the book just sort of, in a way, I uh, have to say it kind of wrote itself just from all the input I'd been receiving for the last few years, you know? So now, was, as it, I, was it was, I, I found this map. Uh -huh. Look at this. Oh, this, I love it. This yeah. is Greenwich Village, 1961. Yeah. This Your is, year. Your year. Yeah, my year. And, you know, and I look at these synchronicities as I'm reading your book and especially, you know, growing up in the 60s and watching uh, these artists on uh, the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. And the variety shows that we saw them. How lucky we were so uh, lucky, to have yeah. that in our lifetime. Yeah. And uh, when you, variety shows, I mean, they, the, the idea of that where you'd see a variety, uh, something for the parents, something for the kids. I mean, those variety shows, it's such an art. That's a great art form in themselves, you know. And that map, by the way, that map is also in my book. It's just a uh, black and white version of it. it doesn't yes. appear in the book. I love that map. And it shows what a small area we're talking about. It's just a few blocks here and a few blocks there around Washington Square Park. But all of these singers and songwriters I write about, either most of them live within that. Besides being there all the time, they live there. So it's a very tiny community. I have this image of you um, looking, e either gazing out your window or walking around late at night. Uh, I mean, when I first came to New York in 1979 was the year I moved to New York. Uh, nice. And when I discovered 
Greenwich Village. Oh my God. I mean, yeah. and Grove Street, you know, uh, there was yeah. the Tavern, the Maurice Crisis, and the Five Oaks, and all of these great places. And as I was reading the book, and you were beginning to write this book, mm-hmm. um, I have this image of you surrounded by all these ghosts of the 1960s um, that are still very much a part of our lives today. Um, and yeah. I want to talk about this, first of all, uh, with uh, revolution. Yeah. Uh, and if you can define from your point of view, revolution, and then I want to talk about what was going on in that world, starting with the beatnik riots of 1961. <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, Everybody get this book. It's so incredible. Thank you. Um, where did that love, I mean, all this music you've grown up with your entire life, but to sit down and start writing this, where did the seed, first of all, I know you said that yeah. it came out of your teaching and the yeah. concert you did in Central Park, but what were those first words that ended up on paper? Wow. Well, you know, the first thing I just, it's very, I wrote it very chronologically. Um, I thought that would be that would keep me in line. I wanted to write it like a story with an arc that would end somehow now in 2021, 2022. So, uh, for one thing, your first question about my definition of the word revolution—it's a—it's a hard word in a way to to uh, totally define because there are different kinds of revolutions. But for me, the basic definition is change. Like you desire change, you want change. So. Within that, there's a lot of different changes and a lot of different desires for things to change from all the people that are I write about in the book and from myself included. So one thing was the change about gender, like bias against uh, sexual orientation. That's that was a revolution when people, when gay, uh, when LGBT uh, Q plus the, that community became more white openly walking the streets of the village in the 60s, uh, but each decade, but especially then in the 60s, that's one step. You know, the idea of the musical revolution of writing your own music, like I was saying before, self-expression, the pure self-expression of just writing what your thoughts are in a song, that was a revolution. Um, The political revolution of wanting to stop the war machine of the constant wars that we're, we seem to be, we get ourselves into. And at the time it was the Vietnam War where young men were drafted over the age of 18. They were living in fear of being drafted and being sent to Vietnam before they could even start their lives. Um, and that revolution was to stop that. So there was many different revolutions going on at the same time. There's not just one. Uh, I used new, the musical revolution as my main theme. The idea that we were taking the music industry and making it ours. That is what I feel was that in a way what they were trying to do, those singers and songwriters. Like that's that's why maybe there's a dichotomy sometimes when we talk about a, a little bit of a, um, uh, an, uh, where they ignore the past, they don't give the respect sometimes to the standards because that was the time when they wanted to create their own, their new standards, their new great American songbook. Um, I think later, a lot of them started to then appreciate the old songs like you're, we're talking about. I certainly did. Mm-hmm. I've worked with the Peggy Lee catalog. I've worked yeah. with so many, or I've worked with so many great catalogs and I love it all. But I think maybe there would have been a time if I would have been a bit older in the 1960s, if I'd have been old enough to be on the music scene, I might've wanted to create, like make our mark, like say, well, I want to have a chance to make our mark, you know, 
And that's maybe why there, there's that was that sensibility. There was that phrase, don't trust anyone over 30. Like that's so ridiculous, you know, so ageist. But that was kind of like, it was like trying to make the mark of young people at that time. And don't forget, it was a huge population of young people. Because for the first time, the baby, in, boomers. the baby boom generation was a large, such a huge generation. And they were just getting to their 20s. So, you know, they wanted to make a mark for their own generation. And that sometimes was, I mean, I don't know if it was intentionally um, hating on the older generation. I think it was just more like a desire to create their own. Maybe I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't around in that era enough to be, to know it one on one. But I feel yeah. that. Feel that I, remember, I, I remember listening to the news and uh, and you would see uh, these images of Greenwich Village. I mean, and it, it was so much. I mean, uh, Peter, Paul, Mary and yeah. the Weavers and Barbara Streisand and uh, and then the comedians. I mean, yeah. uh, with Lenny Bruce and uh, Woody Allen and everyone really. Uh, Joan Rivers, all making their mark at this point. Yeah. And then it was in this like melting pot of Greenwich Village, um, all of these artists and bohemians coming together. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back to 1961. It was April, I think, of 1961 when the Beatnik uh, oh. riots took place. Yes. Uh, if you can talk a little bit about that. Yes, and thank you for mentioning Barbara Streisand and the others who are all on the scene, you know, right down the block from... The folk singers were, you know, was Streisand on on Ninth Street performing, and wow, what a musical, what a musical melting pot the village was, you know, and you know it was for many years, but was really in the sixties. Um, we call it the Beatnik Riot. It's kind of a, I use it as kind of a funny term in a way, but that's what the media called it. It wasn't really a riot, and there weren't really, and there weren't really Beatniks. You know, it was mostly folk singers with their guitars and auto harps and banjos, and the reason they were in the park. And the reason there was a so-called riot is because the city decided that they had too much music in the park and it had to stop. Now, in the book, you know, I talk about why they might have done that. Maybe they didn't like all. The, there were crowds of people, that's for sure. Yes. Maybe they didn't like the particular mix of people that were there. We don't know what it was, but we do know that they wanted to stop it. And they, uh, the city stopped giving the license, the uh, permit, not license, but a permit to perform music in the park. One day after after 20, uh, uh, roughly 20 years of successful Sunday gatherings, the city of New York said no more, no more permits and no more music in Washington Square Park. Well, that wasn't going to fly. The folk singers gathered together and marched in the park with their instruments playing songs, playing, by the way, old songs and new songs and this land is your land. This land is my land. You know, of uh, uh, folk songs from every era, and including the national and the and the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner was also sung. Uh, they were singing, and the police started pushing against it. The police, unfortunately, the police got a bit rough with these folk singers. I must say, there's a film to prove it, and you mm -hmm. can find it on YouTube. It's called Sunday, a lovely film. In fact, it's so lovely that it's in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City as it's a permanent. Sunday? It's called Sunday, just the word Sunday. And I'm it's like look a, for it after the it's, show. It's tonight. fantastic. The filmmaker was only 18 years old, but he was working for the Maisley brothers and and the and Pen, I think D.A. Pennebaker. He was working for some great documentary filmmakers. So he had great equipment to go film this riot. And it's uh he so he starts it with just the park quite sparsely populated, and then more people gather and more people gather. And you can really see without one bit of a uh, voiceover. 
just the conversations that are actually happening. You can see how it all unfolded. Uh, and it's a great film. And what happened was eventually, even though there were a few arrests and there was some roughing up of folk singers, which is sad because they were so gentle with their auto heart, boy with his auto heart. <laughs> and he's being like, the police are grabbing him and just, it's crazy. But then, you know, eventually the city said, okay, you can have music in the park again. So it took about six months, I think, for it to all go through. But uh, since then, we've always had music in the park. And some people may get angry when it gets loud, but, you know, it is part of the tradition of Washington Square Park to have music in it and all kinds of music. It wasn't just folk. You know, there was a jazz corner and a, and a bluegrass. And, you know, there was a lot of music there and people gathered on Sundays to play. That was a place. It was like a venue. It was like a music venue in a way. Now, I know the book came out uh, as a result of COVID uh, because uh, you said that if you had been had the uh, schedule that you had prior to the pandemic, yes. Uh, you would not have had really the time to do this, although this is your second, uh, it is your second book. Yes, it? yes. So I, I would have, you know, I should say, I would have found a t the time and a way to to write it, but the pandemic made it so that I could focus and just write it with nothing else. And so I think that is a part of the reason the book is written in the style, the continuous style that it is written in. I mean, it's almost like- You've one created your own style, <laughs> which I love. That's what that's what Anthony DeCurtis said on the back. Yes. Well, you know, I- I just went again with the flow of it. That's just how it came. It came in one chronological piece as I researched it. I did it all in order. When I, as I was writing it, when I did have the television on, I made sure it was channels playing shows only from the 19, early 1960s. And then I could sort of see there'd be references to Greenwich Village all the time in that. And so I was surrounded by that era and the decade. Mm -hmm. throughout the writing of this book it's it was it was almost like method acting but it was method writing I well, just, that's how i prepped for this show I, uh, I, as i was uh, as i'm reading the soundtrack of 1960 i mean today for example yeah. i was listening to all of the music from this date in 1961 uh, to get a sense of what was being played uh you also and uh you mentioned and you even mentioned this in your introduction um uh when you've got the billboard charts and everything you don't do this in terms of uh the best or the worst. Right. it was a just to give an overview of what that period was like. Thank I want you. to talk about your process because in the book, you um, you begin with one of my favorite songs to come out of the 60s, um, uh, If I Had a Hammer. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I will never listen to that song the same way again after reading this chapter. Uh, thank you. And I mean it's that in a positive song. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great song. Uh, because when... Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary came in. Uh, the original lyric was brothers, and they add brothers and sisters. Yeah. Uh, but then Pete Seeger also had his comments on what they <laughs> did musically. Um, and again, this is a teaser for everyone because we want you to get the book. If you can talk about your conversations with Pete Seeger on that well, particular song. Well, you know, I don't think he said that to anybody else. I just think we were having, he knew I was, see, Pete, I had a great, a very special Unfortunately, shorter than I wish it could have been, but he passed, he passed. But for the last six or so years of his life, I knew, I guess about, six, so we met, uh, yeah, about six years or so. Uh, I had met Pete Seeger through George Wayne of the Newport Folk and Jazz Festivals. And, and um, 
slowly got, you know, occasionally would see him at events. And then I got to work with him. I got to do shows with him and I got to produce a recording for him. And during the time we were recording, we would talk every day. He would call me in the afternoons. We'd have great conversations. So there's certain things in the book that Pete Seeger told me during our phone calls. And I don't, I don't, I've never heard him tell anyone else the no. comment about Peter, Paul and Mary. I, it's very sweet. And he, sometimes it was posed as, as a question to me, like, May I say, would you like me to say, I, I don't want to give a spoiler either, but he would ask me like, well, this is just a little tiny spoiler, but like he would ask, he asked me once why I thought they put the, ooh, 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 because, you know, he said, you know, that wasn't in the lyric. And I said, that wasn't the, and from that point on, everybody did it. I know, I know. And I said, Pete, I know it wasn't in the lyric, but maybe it got people singing. And he loved that because that's what he wanted people to do. He wanted them to sing songs. You know, so he wasn't really complaining to me. He was just asking, like, I wonder why they put the ooh. Now, this is so many years after the fact. That's why I found it so amusing, is that maybe he hadn't really asked anyone that before. Maybe he had, but I don't know about, you know. To me, it was a great question. And to me, the answer is that, well, people started singing that song everywhere. Maybe that helped. Because he wrote it in the late 40s. Mm-hmm. And then by the time Peter, Paul, and Mary did it, it was in the early 60s. So, you know, it went, it had quite a lifespan already and they gave it a new life. When Trini Lopez did it soon after in a sort of a slightly Latino style, that really had the ooh, ooh all the way, you know. I met Trini Lopez thanks to Carol Channing. Oh, oh, wonderful. uh, I I was at her star dedication in Palm Springs and Ah. Trini Lopez and I sat with each other next to each other. Wow. What a thrill to meet Trini Lopez. What a great performer he was, you know, that's when, you know, all of these performers, you know, they were, that was a golden age of performers. Now, just a few weeks ago, speaking of golden age of performers, there are still uh, golden age of performers. I know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't mean, I don't, that was a golden age. No, I know. One of the golden ages. Yeah, but yeah, I want to yeah. mention because just yeah. a couple of weeks ago, I was at the turning point. I live in Piermont, New York. Oh, I love, I love that. Point. Yeah. And, um, uh, Danny Bonet was performing. Well, Danny Bonet has played, you know, many uh, shows with me as well. Yeah. yeah. And, well, that's why I'm bringing her up because, yeah. of course, your name was dropped in the show in, uh, in glowing terms. I might. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and then I went, "Wow, he's coming on the show in a few weeks." Um, and but she was talking about the two of you working together, and that's another mm-hmm. thing that I want to talk about, uh, and that's collaboration, uh, because. I get the sense that you just love the collaborative process. I do. And, you know, my shows are not just in the studio, not just in the songwriting room, but uh, on stage, I really like collaborating. We just did a concert on the Thursday night at the Museum of the City of New York. It was the launch, the official launch of the book, Music and Revolution. And we had a great cast with Carolyn Hester, one of the great folk singers of the early 60s. And uh, I saw the photographs, yes. uh, David Amram, the great... uh, you know, composer, conductor, songwriter. Uh, and we collaborated on stage live in, in real time. You know, we didn't know who was going to sing or play on what. We, As performers came up to sing, people collaborated spontaneously. And that's really what I love in music. I think true music, well, let me put it this way. True music for me is a collaboration. You know, Absolutely. and I, I don't think it is, uh, it can be done by yourself. Like you can, there are the, there are the exceptions, like, you know, Prince in his, studio making his records all by himself or certain artists that can do it. But for the most part, I think a true music is a true collaboration. 
Um, I'm going to quote another great songwriting team, yeah. uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yeah. And they say, if you become a teacher by your pupils, you'll be taught. Ah. Where are you taught by your pupils? Absolutely. I'm taught by them constantly. A lot of the book, a lot of what I wrote in Music and Revolution came from questions that the students asked me. And not just in that last chapter when I talk about, I don't want to give no, there's no more spoilers, but this the last chapter has some of my students in it. But mm -hmm. let me just say this. Uh, they a lot along the way, like when we were talking about, say, early on, Alan Lomax, and um, oh, oh my god, uh, you've turned me on to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to be honest with you, I was not really, familiar I know, with him. I know, I, but listening to this music today and I that driving beat, yeah, yeah, well, you know, uh, the question, the students, the question, the students asking me questions led to so many so much of the information in the book. And this made me think and made me want to find out their answers for them. So I could tell them. If I knew, I would tell them. And if I didn't know, I'd research it and find out. And that meant calling the Library of Congress sometimes or mm -hmm. call, you know, speaking to curators of museums. And they're all, they're all credited in the book. Usually I credit them right in the, where I use their quote. I didn't, you know, it's, not, it's something I had to mention right there. Like I had to call someone or I had to contact someone. Uh, but yeah, the students, they, they made this happen as much as I did. That's when why I'm, the book is dedicated. That's why the book is dedicated to my mother and my students. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Josephine. Yes, that's yes. right. Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. So Josephine, yes. thank you. Yes. Uh, when I was growing up in South Carolina, I had a great mentor, Florence Epps. I've mentioned her many times on this show and she she had a little playhouse in her backyard and I used to go on Wednesday and Thursday afternoons to study with her. Now, everyone, please understand the time frame of this. This is before Google. So I would go and she would, we would read from the classics. We would read about famous celebrities and everything. And if she mentioned a name, uh, and this is why I go back and listen to these people as the name would pop up in your book. I would ask my device, I won't mention the name, yeah. uh, to, uh, to start playing uh, this music. And I got a sense of who these people are. But she said to me, uh, if we were doing a, a lesson and I didn't know who someone was, she would close the book and say, I will see you next Wednesday. And when you come in, know who they are. And mm -hmm. I would leave and I would go to the Conway Library and I would go through the small music uh, and theater department and go through every book. And I would look these names up in the index to learn as much as I could about them. And I get this sense from you. She always said to me, every time you step on stage, every time you were in front of a camera, an audience, whatever, you were carrying the mantle of these great artists uh, uh, with you. And I get this true feeling that you really personify this in this book by celebrating the gifts that each of these artists brought to the music industry in a very changing world that we were living in. Yeah, it was changing every minute. And thank you for using the word celebration because I use that word too, and I love it. I, lo I know that's your, the name of your show, and I, it is really – that's what this book – it's a celebration of Greenwich Village in the 1960s and all the people in it. And it's a celebration of what they celebrated. And one thing was, um, like as you said, I mean, a, a true appreciation of the music that they created and that they discovered too, you know. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm going to give away a copy of your book tonight. And, Great. Uh, and what I'm going to do here, uh, the word that I chose, I choose the word each day as the word of the day. And the hashtag for tonight is hashtag equality. Um, because we really get a sense of this. I mean, against the backdrop of this music, 
uh, was uh, the uh, gay pride movement, uh, mm -hmm. as it was called back then. Sure. Uh, and the women's movement. Uh, yeah. Protesters against the Vietnam War. Um, it was against the backdrop of assassinations of our leaders. Uh, the world was changing. And in a world where we had three networks, yeah. uh, the world, people at home, me in South Carolina, people in New York, people all over the world were seeing what was going on nightly in the village because this was something that was being broadcast around the world. Yes. Um, the word is equality. What equality means to you on both sides of the footlights. Wow. Well, you know, that's a, a beautiful word. And it's a word, that, I mean, I strive for all in every aspect. I mean, we want equality. I want, I want um, um, you know, res respect, equality. The, the, these... This is what, uh, especially in the civil rights movement that was happening as a true, as a, as a major backdrop to a lot of this music. I mean, in the early 60s, the folk singers were a good mouthpiece for the civil rights movement, for Dr. King, for instance, that type of equality. Of course, we absolutely equality for uh, the LGBTQ plus community now and that what was the gay, the beginnings of the gay rights movement which in 1969 at the Stonewall, right down the block from where I live, uh, where there was another, this is a bookend, I mean, the first so-called riot of the Beatnik riot for music in the village and the in, in 61 and then in 69, the Stonewall riots, which went on for two weeks, basically, right down the block, and which Dave Van Bronck, one of our heroes in the book, is arrested. Now he's not even gay, he's just supporting that you know what I mean, and he's in the middle of it. Uh, he, um, he, he, you know, it's just it was all for equality, different equality in all aspects, racial, gender, uh, orientation, music, music equality too. Like why can't mm -hmm. we? Why can't we be accepted for the music that we play? You know, mm -hmm. so all of these things was about all of these all of these things we're talking about really equalities at the core. Maybe that is the revolution. Maybe it was an, a revolution for equality. Absolutely. So I've got some wind down questions that I'm gonna ask you as we wind down tonight. Uh, these yeah. are just for the fun of it to give uh, everyone yeah. a, a greater sense of who you are. And the first question that I'm gonna ask is, uh, in this business, what's the worst job that you've ever had and how did you oh. get through it? I don't know, in the music business? Yes. You know, I don't know if I've ever had a word. I love all aspects of music. I'm one of the I'm one of the odd ones. I like all aspects of the music industry. I mean, I'm on the I work with the Grammys. You know, the Recording Academy. I've been a member since the '80s. You know, and I work uh, with music advocacy for musicians and music creators. Um, that's dirty work. You have to meet with senators. I mean, that's mm -hmm. you know. But I love that too. I love having conversations with people about why we should get paid, why musicians should be treated equally. Um, I, I don't know. I can't think of any. You know, the most I will say that the the least the least appreciated job in the music industry, I think, are the managers of bands. Uh, so often, uh, artists don't really appreciate their managers. That's a very common. And they don't, they don't often appreciate their record labels. But mm -hmm. without any of these elements, something would be missing. We need, we need them all in some way, in some part of the music industry. You know, I, I can't say, I will not say that there's one job in the music industry that I don't like. I love that. That's a great, yeah. what a great answer also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and this uh, next, it's a statement. Uh, yeah. Read a book that's outside your comfort zone and discuss. Um, you are so immersed in the music world. Mm -hmm. um, are there books or topics outside the music industry that also oh, yeah. you gravitate towards? I have a lot of political books. I have a lot of... Um... I have a lot of books on politics. I'm very interested in politics. Oh, uh, me lo too. Local me too. and national and international. So I read a lot of political books. When I'm not doing music, I'm often reading uh, books on politics. I'm intrigued by world politics. But now is an intriguing time. It's a, a heartbreaking time in parts of the world. Uh, but it's also uh, something we can learn from every day. So I, I like I like books on politics. And they are related, folks. Yeah. Right? They are hey, music plus revolution. It's really it's music and politics, also. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, where in your life do you need uh, to speak up the most uh, in today's world, um, either for yourself or something that you believe in? Well, that's good. I mean, I think in the most obvious way, when I talk about advocacy for music creators, that's something that I'm very much involved with with the Grammys. It's part of my job as uh, being on the advocacy committee for the recording academy is that we meet with congress well once a year in person but throughout the year constantly in touch with them about um the rights of artists because we don't always get a fair shake and we don't always get the tax breaks and we don't always get even the you know uh a compensation that uh, through through things like spotify that we, which we love and use all the time and all the different platforms you're not always paid properly it's not like it it's not like when we sold a record it's not like selling a cd or a record when they stream when the streaming services have your music they don't always treat us fairly and so i'm always ha i'm always going to bat for the recording industry for the for music creators well on behalf of all artists i thank you for that well you're welcome um, uh what uh conventional wisdom uh do you disagree with in terms of the music industry Hmm. Like what? What's an example of a conventional wisdom? Well, I mean, some people believe. I mean, we'll we'll go back to uh, certain types of music not being played on regular television. Uh, uh, or, yeah. uh You know, what are some? Of the okay. Things? Okay. I think that the idea of of separating genres that that's a type of segregation. Uh, I think that we are in a. It's getting only worse. This idea of segregating musical types into different categories that are separate where you can't work, you know, uh, the algorithms of our, uh, you know, the various websites and, and apps that will give you what you, th what they think you should hear instead of just the wider picture of all the beautiful colors of music that exist. Like, why isn't there, why doesn't it tell me, why doesn't YouTube tell me that it would be great to hear a Benny Goodman song or a Peggy Lee song? Or Absolutely. A, like, you know, why do I well, have to get... In my case, it does. <laughs> well, like, if I'm working on, yeah, you're yes. good. But in my case, if I have a lot of folk yes. music, it'll give me more folk music. But exactly. what about, what about, you know, all the great singer-songwriters of the other eras, too, you know? So I think the something should be fixed with that. I, I don't think they need to be so focused. I know the advertisers want them to be. Or the companies that are, yeah, companies that are that are advertising. But really, I think music should be way more of an open book, and we should enjoy music from every decade, every genre, and we should really get into those grooves that maybe were happening in the 1940s sometimes, you know, and not be locked into one thing. I love, I'm a rocker, and I love it, but that doesn't mean that's all I love. 
mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like all kinds of music and around the world. I mean, world music from around the world, Latin music. And, and certainly Brazilian, you know, Brazil has such a, a world of music itself. So I, I just think that that is a, the idea that the music industry may feel that we want to just hear one thing is totally wrong. It's just based on their own, the way that they're set up to distribute music, but not in the way that people really want to hear music in their ears and hearts. Absolutely. And thank you for that. I totally agree with you. Um, what was the, you know, you we talk about the love of this business, but um, has there ever been a period in your life where uh, COVID excluded, of course, uh, that was a difficult period to get through in terms of the artistic end of the business? And what got you through it? Mm, it's a good question. I think I've been, knock on wood, I've been, one, I've been fortunate to find my way to navigate the waters of change because I, I you know what, it, it's, a, it's such a deep love for music that I think has just taken me to different paths. Like sometimes if I'm not, say for instance, if for whatever reason I'm not able to perform as much as other times, well then I find a way, a path into doing music uh, that involves producing other people or songwriting for others. Um, and it's been, it's an ongoing, it's always changing. My own approach of working in music is always changing. That might be a key. And if there's a lesson for others to share, to be flexible so you don't feel you have to always be, say, for instance, the front man. Like what happens when your band breaks up? Where, where, where are you then? That's when I picked up my guitar and had to learn how to relearn how to perform all by myself or slowly add in other musicians like a cellist or a percussionist and kind of build a new sound. Well, you just have to roll with the punches. And like anything else, it's a, it is an act of survival sometimes. But I think even during times like that, it's a regrouping. That's My first book talks about that a little more than the second mm-hmm. book. It talks about what do you do when, when everything falls apart for that moment? Well, think of it as something that's momentary. It's a chapter that ends and that you have to start your next chapter. You know? Amen. Uh, I've got a comment from Joyce Glasgow. Joyce, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, this is a comment for you, and you can oh, read uh, She says, I noticed, Richard, that you were on WBAI. Yes. I used to listen to the station in the 1960s growing up. That was a heyday of music and politics on WBAI. Yes. Um, yes. It still is on WBAI. That's, it's still a lot of music and a lot of politics on WBAI, that's for sure. Uh, and, you know, thank you. And I love WBAI. Yeah. Um, when did you show the most courage in your career? Hmm. Well, let me first say that I'm on WBAI. People can tune in. I'm on the show Folk Radio, which airs on Thursdays at 10 p.m. And we have different hosts because of our schedules. I host once a month or so. We have different hosts. Uh, and I love the station. The most, did you say the most difficult or most challenging uh, time? Uh, when did you show the most courage? Oh, the most career? courage. Wow. I think having to become... If I, if, if I can say this, if I can say that it took courage, and I think it did at the time for me, I was not really sure if he uh, would be able to do it. But becoming a frontman, a band, uh, was took a lot of courage for me. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I could sing and play for an audience at first. I, thought, I just thought it would be an impossibility for me. I was very shy. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, well, 
Thank you. I want to remind everyone that the word tonight is equality. I see that. I like that on the screen. So big. I yes, like it. Uh, four yeah. people have responded, and I know that there are more watching. Uh, the best way to leave a comment, by the way, if you're having trouble, is directly on the YouTube channel. Uh, just put in hashtag quality and uh, equality. And I'm going to ask just a couple of more questions just to give people a chance to get a chance to win the book. Um, you mentioned just now that you had um, that you're essentially shy, that you didn't yes. have the courage to do this. Um, mm -hmm. Would you consider that to be your biggest self-doubt in this business? Well, yes, but I think it's, again, we have to, even if you have self-doubt, I think you just have to, well, if you choose to do something, even with self-doubt, you have to just dive in and do it. I did not think I could do it. And certainly going on tour, I mean, I didn't think I could do that every night either. That was another challenge. But um, I, you know, I wrote about it in the first book. I talked about stage fright. I do believe the stage fright is a fear of having stage fright. I think that stage fright is sort of a, it's not really a thing that actually happens at the time that you have it, that people think you have it. I think it's something that happens in anticipation of. It's a fear of that maybe I'll get stage fright. I think that's, that's how it is for me anyway. Once yeah. I actually am there, I want to just give to the audience everything that I have to give, every ounce that I can give them. And so the, the, any fear that was there goes away. And it happens every time I go on stage. I, I always think, can I do this? But then once I'm there and I see the audience and I'm there for them, I'm no longer there for me. I'm no, I, don't know, I don't, no longer have the luxury of being nervous because I'm there for them. That's wonderful. So, um, what was your biggest find working on this book? Hmm. Oh, there's so many. I discovered so much. You know, the stories of, there's a certain character in the book that really touched my heart was Paul Clayton, an early young mm -hmm. folk singer, gay young man in the 60s. Like what a struggle it must have been for him at a time with so much homophobia all around him, even from his friends who accepted him would still give him and jazz. And I might add, excuse me for interrupting, yeah. Richard, not yeah. only was there homophobia, but it was illegal to be gay in New York. I know. And he's a singer and he's you know, a performer and he was also a prodigy of folk music. He was he, he was the most recorded, the most recorded, meaning the most albums of any of the young folk singers. He made 20 mm -hmm. albums in his short life, just in a, in a, in a year and it's in a several year span, you know, um, and all kinds of folk music and so much of a wealth of material that Bob Dylan and all the others could only wish that they could discover. They took them. They took the songs from Paul Clayton and would do their own versions of them and make a fortune. But Paul Clayton had a lot of struggles and he was not able to to portray himself because of you know when you talk about self doubt and unacceptance, who he, he how could you blame him for being if he was um, if he held back on stage or if he was not really a great performer as they said that people saw me, how could you blame him when he was not when he knew he may not be accepted by the audiences? Mm -hmm. So, but but you know that was an eye opener. He was best friends with Bob Dylan, who I don't mm -hmm. think really treated him very well. He was also in love with Bob Dylan. That's another spoiler in the book, but it's an important story that needs to be told. 
You know? Well, thank you for telling all of these stories. Uh, we're going to give away the book now, and uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Wow. Uh, well, look at all those names of all those listeners. How great. I love you. it. I so love it. thank you all for being here, um, and we'll see who our winner is tonight. Wow. Jerry Callahan from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. She shows up. She used to say, I never win anything. She can't say that anymore. Wow. Uh, great. So, Jerry, I will get the book to you as soon as possible. Um, Richard, I want to say my closing uh, remarks tonight. Then I'm going to turn the screen over to you completely okay. so that you've got the final word tonight. Uh, uh, it could be about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon, uh, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, okay. or just any final message you want to leave everyone with tonight. Don't okay. worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the credits will roll. Um, equality. Um, I chose this word tonight uh, as I was reading this book, which, by the way, is just... I couldn't put it down. Oh, I mean, you. from the moment that it arrived, and it is it, it is a beautifully put together book. Thank you. So, Roger, the designer is Roger Gorman, who does beautiful work. His design work on this is just great. It, yeah. It's just incredible. Yeah. And you. to really delve into uh, the world at that time, and uh, which is has not ended. It still goes on. Yes. And this music, thank God, we can still listen to uh, every day. Thank God for the artist. Uh, who were creating their own revolution uh, at this time. And uh, and you too, Richard, for the work that you do with Thank the new you. school and your writing and everything. Um, I can't wait to get the first book and I can't Thank wait you. to see what the next book is going to ah, be. Thank uh, you. So to put a little pressure on you, uh -huh. uh, my hope is that anytime you have something to promote or talk about, that you'll reach out to me and that you'll come back on the show. Thank because you, Zidia. I I just love your work. I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, you. And uh, I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. Um, as I say at the end of every show, um, I don't take it lightly when you show up. So thank you for being here tonight. Um, I hope that after tonight's show that you will go to my YouTube channel, that you will leave a comment about tonight's show, and that you will share this with your friends. I also end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Uh, go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the fourth name that's on the list. Now, if you're able to do this, great. And if you're not able to do this, I totally understand. But go to Amazon or your favorite bookseller and buy two copies of this book. Keep one for yourself and send one to the fourth friend on your list. Wow. And put a little note into it telling them what they mean to you. And let's keep the music flowing through all of our lives because music is the one thing that we all share in common. I don't care what side you're on politically. I don't care uh, what your uh, beliefs are or prejudices or anything. The music is the unifier that brings us all together. And that creates equality if you really take the time to listen to these great artists and what they brought to the table. Um, I have a dear friend, John Moniker. He always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So, Richard, I'm going to leave the screen, and it's all yours. And, again, thank you for being here tonight. Well, thank you. And thank you for being such a great host. And, and you know, with a name like Richard, how could you go wrong? But thank you, Richard Skipper, for having me. And, you know, I don't – I think we've talked about such such a wide range of things on this show. I, I'm just – I was really happy to be invited and to share with you. I guess one of the messages of the book um, is how music can change things. I really think that uh, songwriters today – are not always using their potential, their their um, you know the gift that music has within it to change minds and hearts. Sometimes music tends to be about 
nothing or tends to be about something, just a catchy phrase. But, you know, within a song, you can do so much. You can say so much. And I just would encourage songwriters to at least take that into consideration when they write a song, that they can say something about their situation or other people's situation that can really help help change it, help make things better. Um, and through the 60s, through the artists that I wrote about in the book, that was a major concern of all of the songwriters. So many of them wrote from the point of view of we instead of I. You know, they wrote about all of us, not just about, you know, one person. And I think that uh, that's gotten lost over the decades in some ways. It's become more, you know, me generation and I generation and iMac and iPhone and, I, you know, everything is just it seems focused inwardly, even though that really stood for Internet, not I, not, not I. But I do think that musicians have a special, special gift to be able to share um, something within themselves that can help make the world better. And I just would encourage all songwriters to do it, to use that gift. So that's just, that's my closing thought for today. I mean, that closing thought would change on any given day. But today, that, that my, my message is for songwriters, performers, to remember that they have that gift. Okay, so I'm just going to sign off. And I really, really thank all of you for tuning in and listening. And thank you, Richard Skipper, for having me. And I hope to see you again soon. You can always find me at richardbarone.com on WBAI once a month on Folk Radio. But come to my website and find me on social media. Thank you. Bye-bye.